Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Chit Chatting with an S. Sarah here, and I am joined by my friend Marie, who's from Minnesota. She is Senegalese American, uh, London based, and works in public diplomacy. Hi, Marie. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Sarah? I'm good, thanks. Coming down with a bit of a cough, but I'm all right. I'm really happy to have you on. And the reason I invited you to join the podcast today is because you recently shared something on your social media channels, so on Facebook and on Instagram, although I actually saw it on Instagram first. And it was a post that I found very powerful and very meaningful. And I thought we could just chat a little bit about that and perhaps explore what made you want to post it and yeah just discuss a little bit so do you mind reading the post to us just so the listeners know yeah I'm more than happy to read it this is my first grade photo from Brimhall Elementary School this was also the year I was called a nigger the first time of many while living in Minnesota I was on the playground, and a girl knocked me off balance, pinned me in the sand, and said, You know you're a nigger, right? At six years old, I didn't know what the word meant. I only knew it felt wrong. What did you say? I asked her. You're a nigger, she said again. I brushed her off of me and walked towards my friends who were upperclassmen. Why did my friend call me a nigger? I asked. Their expressions told me something was very wrong. They asked me to point out the girl so we could talk to her. When we approached her, she said very matter-of-factly, I didn't know it was a bad word. That's what my parents call people that look like her. After speaking to the guidance counselor, there was no conversation with either of us about the implications of her words. I was meant to simply move on because she didn't mean it. While most kids my age were learning to ride bikes and hula hoop, I was thrust into a pseudo coming of age ritual I wasn't prepared for. A rite of passage every black child remembers. But what can be expected of a school that was segregated? Yes, Brimhall was institutionally segregated. One half of the school was called Hobbit and the other self-contained. We came to vehemently despise each other and refused to play with one another on the playground. Anyone who sought to play with students from the other side were called traitors. We screamed at each other as we passed one another in the halls. We internalized an entrenched superiority over one another based on the social construct that the school created. This was also the school where it was obligatory to recite the Pledge of Allegiance a pledge very reminiscent of totalitarian states, written in honor of Christopher Columbus and in direct violation of the First Amendment, separation of church and state. I eventually left Brimhall to later learn it had finally, quote-unquote, integrated in or around 1997. What's troubling is that this part of the school's insidious history seems to have been completely erased without a trace. But I guess that's the struggle with history reconciling memory with what's meant to be forgotten. Thanks for reading that. You know, it's a lot that you, you shared on there, and I guess that's probably part of the reason why people responded the way they did. But, uh, well, thanks for sharing, but we'll get to that. Of course, yeah, I guess it kind of read more like a journal post because that's kind of how it started off, actually. I've been journaling 
since I was like eight years old, I think. So especially like, you know, now that we have a lot more time, I've been, I've been writing a lot more. And, and it wasn't until I wrote it down that I realized how odd and confusing and traumatizing it was. And I started recalling this experience and I didn't really recognize how problematic it was until reading it back to myself. And I guess the reason why I posted it was because I was interested to kind of see how other people that went to the school felt because there were a lot of people that I met later on in middle school and in high school that I went to Brum Hall with and I did not know at all. And we were on those separate wings. So as I told you earlier, that post was completely for myself and the response was really surprising to me. That wasn't really what I was expecting. I kind of posted it more just as like a recalling of of the racism that I experienced in my first recollection, I think, of realizing that I was Black or realizing that Black was a problem. So I guess that's kind of like the background as to why I wrote it. I think just to add a bit of context, what year would it have been when this happened? So let's see. Oh, my math is crap. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're so, talking about the 90s, right? We're not talking about the 80s. We're talking about the 90s. Nope. So I think this was in 1995, if my math is correct. Yep. How old were you? I was six. So what sort of reactions did you get to this post then from who? The reactions that I got were mostly from people that I went to elementary school with, which was um, which was really interesting because a lot of them I haven't spoken to in years. Like I said, there's a few people that I'm still in contact with, but for the most part, they were people that I haven't spoken to literally since I was, some of them since, since elementary school and um, a lot of them since high school. And their reactions varied some people were in complete shock that that they went to that school and they didn't realize how odd that situation was some people that went to neighboring schools so the area is called Roseville area mm-hmm. schools so there's a you know there's a whole system of, of schools so that's like elementary schools middle school and uh, high school that all kind of encompasses that area it's in Roseville okay. so that's where that's where I that's where I grew up. So there's a few different elementary schools within that that system. So a lot of the people that went to some of those neighboring schools were really surprised to hear that there was even a system like that in place. Some of the other reactions were that people were a part of that system and they didn't think that it was that bad. Um, but for the most part, people were just really surprised to hear about what I went through. And also, I think one thing that was really surprising was a few people remembered me talking about this experience, I guess, in fifth grade. Um, So this was in reference to the post that I wrote on Facebook, because I think that one got a little bit more traction. And a few people mentioned that they remember me talking about my experience in fifth grade, and I don't remember. I don't remember this at all. There's so interesting that you, you don't remember. I don't remember at all. I just remember that in fifth grade, that was the first time that I had a teacher that really encouraged me and, and empowered me to, to use my voice. 
and to be a more like active member of the classroom. So, I mean, I'm not surprised, but I also don't remember at all. And it was interesting. I had like two or three people that said, I remember you speaking about what you went through and how powerful it was and how deeply hurt you still were, even in fifth grade. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. Also, what was interesting is that I'm still Facebook friends with the girls, the upperclassmen mm-hmm. that helped me through that experience. So it was also really therapeutic to be able to, to thank them for what they did for me in that situation. Cause I don't think that, I don't think that they remember that day and coupled on top of that as a first generation American I don't think that our parents are prepared for situations like this they're a lot more prepared for you know blatant racism or colonialism whatever type of abuse that they went through back home that is super traumatic but they're not really prepared for the the covert racism, the microaggressions, the the very specific type of racism that lives in the U.S. So it was also interesting to see from the post that a lot of my African went through similar um, experiences. And there were quite a few people that said it was in that school that they were first called a nigger as well. So since you mentioned parents not necessarily being equipped to deal with these kind of situations, what was the reaction in your household? Is that something you shared when you got home or did you just let it go? I remember you writing that not much was done in the school once this fact was denounced and Mm -hmm. neither of you girls have been addressed after this fact happened essentially after you mm. have to endure this abuse which I find quite shocking mm-hmm. but then again if you think about where we're now versus the 90s there has been some progress not everywhere and not all the time mm-hmm. but is that something that you shared with your family that's where my my memory gets a little bit hazy I don't really remember much and I think part of the reason why I don't remember much is because there really was not an intervention when I went home, I know that I went home and I, I told my parents about it, but I don't think they knew how to speak to a child about that. And I don't think that they knew how to, how to really console me and like how to move on from that. So I don't really remember having a conversation at home. And also like, I don't think I ever really told my sister about this situation either. It's just something that I never really talked about. I just kind of internalized and it it definitely is something that I take with me I'm realizing in a lot of a lot of situations and it stayed with me for a long time I did have a few actually friends message me privately and ask if I had told them about this and they had just maybe forgotten I was like no I just I never talked about it literally writing that whole post or that journal entry was my first time I think also admitting that that happened and that it was wrong. And is this an episode you had been thinking about throughout your life or had you compartmentalized it somewhere at the back of your brain and it just resurfaced recently? So I'm quite curious to hear about that because obviously there's been a lot going on and in a way, I mean, it's obvious that you you try not to think about it to a certain extent. And as you just mentioned, you can't fully remember how things unfolded 
in the immediate aftermath, um, which is also understandable because it was mm-hmm. many, many years ago and you're a child and our memories are not accurate regardless. And it comes to mm-hmm. something so unpleasant. It's only natural that we try and forget about it. Yeah, I think I, I definitely, I compartmentalize different bits of that story, if that makes sense. So I've talked openly and, and honestly with a lot of my friends about the whole Hobbit self-contained separation. But if I'm honest, it was never very serious. It was more of kind of like a joke. You know, as I, as I alluded in the post, we came to kind of hate each other. And so we kind of joked about that as adults saying like, oh, you are part of Hobbit Snobbit and you are part of South Contaminated. Mm-hmm. Those are literally the names that we called each other as kids. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's terrible. It's like I'm laughing about it now. But if you can imagine as a kid, like that's like it's yeah. just not right. And there was no intervention from from the adults. So. Yeah, that was something that we had talked about as adults kind of in passing and as a joke, but we, I, I never really analyzed that situation. And I guess with the recent events of, you know, the racial injustice and uh, the constant murders of Black people in the United States, it kind of made me recall the first time that I realized that I was Black or this, the first time that I realized that being Black was a problem. And it's, a, it's kind of a mixed bag of emotions because I'm, I'm not African-American. I don't have a history of family ties in the United States. My family ties, you know, I can trace directly back to Africa mm-hmm. from my mom. So I don't have that type of history. But I think, you know, with that incident and being called a nigger, I realized that it doesn't matter. In the context of America, the way that people look at me, I'm, I'm Black, and that's it. They don't care about my ancestral background or where my mother is from, where my father is from. They first see my skin, and they make, they make their assumptions from there. So yeah, I guess like when I recalled the first time that I, I realized my, my skin color, I also kind of went deeper into where that happened, how that happened, and also the complexity of, of bigotry. Because I think also what was complicated about that situation is that I was a part of a, a section of the school that was better equipped. Those two sections were not equitable uh, at in, all. In which I way in the, were these sections different? one from the other. So Hobbit was for musically and artistically inclined children and South Contained, I I apologize, I don't know too much about it, but I know that it was more academics-based education, more Mm -hmm. formal education. And it was a choice. I know that our parents had the choice of putting us in in either, either or, but Hobbit seemed to be the side that had better resources. So every year we had this big concert where, you know, we would play um, all these instruments. We'd play like the xylophone, the recorder, everything. And then we'd have like a dance recital, a a music recital. And basically self-contained, they would have to come and watch this huge performance. And yeah, and I never, I never forgot how upset they were when they were watching us. And also quite honestly, how I felt good about it, how I was like, you know, like, I'm kind of, I'm on the star team. And all these people have to watch me and like, how 
even though I was going through that racism at the school, I was also inflicting pain on people unconsciously through my sense of entitlement, superiority. I think that says a lot about how structures affect children as well. So there is this idea sometimes Mm -hmm. of children as not being equipped to internalize structures in society. But I think this is a classic example of Mm -hmm. how you, for example, had to endure racism, but then on the other hand, you felt that privilege Mm -hmm. of being part of that side of the school, Mm -hmm. which had better resources. And I guess as a child, that Mm -hmm. privilege came in the shape of a concert and having other kids Mm -hmm. not have access to that concert. And this is a classic example of how kids completely understand and live that dynamic in first person. And Mm -hmm. of course, they might not understand the nuances of it, but I always find it surprising how a lot of parents just downplay the importance of how they speak at home and how they behave in the presence of kids because kids are just like sponges (laughs) they just absorb everything and they're very very quick at doing that math in their head and understanding where there is a gain and where there is a loss and using it to their own benefit really absolutely and and I think that's why I was very intentional of including the bit when the girl said I only said that because that's what my parents call people that look like her. I really wanted to emphasize that at the end of the day, she is also a victim. She was only six years old as well. And like, you know, that could have been a learning lesson for her, but she's just parroting what she heard from her parents. You know, we were both very much victims of of that system because it could have been a teachable moment for both of us. The counselor could have explained to her the implications of her words, why it was painful, the history, included her parents in that conversation as well. And, you know, not necessarily reprimanded them, but said, you know, this is something that your child said, and this is why it's a problem. And also, you know, they could have supported me as well in, in, in that I endured that type of verbal abuse. And I was meant to feel like, you know, as, as long as she says that she's sorry, we can just move on and that will no longer affect me. And But then the, reali- the reality of this so, is that ultimately you couldn't truly move on because here we are obviously talking about this post, but despite her being a victim as well, the outcome mm-hmm. in the long term for the two of you was very different. And for you, the outcome was being singled out and realizing for the first time in your life that society wanted you to think of yourself as other but also that society thought of yourself as being an outsider Um, so although I completely agree with you and I agree with the fact that you're both victims I guess the extent to which you were victims varies greatly and I think that for me is critical because in all these conversations that people are having now more than ever around race, around accountability, I think it's so important just to remember that to an extent we are all victims of the system, but some people suffer mm-hmm. more than others and it isn't a choice. And there is, there is no way out in a way because you, you can obviously no. be active and try to change this. And this is what a lot of us are trying to do. But it is the reality we live in and and a lot of people are in denial, clearly. And we'll try and cling to that argument of the girl being a victim of perhaps her parents' ignorance. But then 
the fact that the consequence of that is something you have to live with for the rest of your life is not comparable. A hundred percent. And that that is a really important point to to emphasize that although this was a one-off event for that girl and for the counselor and honestly for even the you know the people that had helped me through that situation, I was the one that remembered. I was the one that lived with that moment for the rest of my life. I know for a fact that if I were to go up to that girl, because I All still right. know who she is, and if I were Let's yep. go get her. If I were to go up to that girl today. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny because a lot of people did message message me and ask me like oh, what no. her name is and you know who she is. And I made it clear that I did I did tell them who it was and they didn't even they didn't even recognize they don't even remember her. And I I did make it very clear to emphasize that I'm sure that she doesn't even remember this incident. It meant nothing to her. And as you said, I was the one that was that was left to deal with that. I was the one that was impacted the most. We're both definitely victims in different ways, but what I went through, my pain is it deserves to be recognized. And I think that's also a learning lesson for me in general, that I think a lot of times pain and in general black pain is is underscored. Yeah, underscored and underplayed. And a lot of times we're afraid to talk about these instances because we don't want sympathy. And I, you know, I, I did want to make that very clear as well, that I didn't write that for sympathy. I wrote that to put into words that this happened. Yeah, just for myself, because I think I, I definitely wanted to forget that this happened. And I wanted also to downplay the severity of how it affected my but, life. Um, but also to your so. point of saying that you didn't write that for sympathy, which I know is the case for you, because obviously I know you were friends, but even if you had written that for sympathy, my stance in this is all the Black mm-hmm. people that endure this kind of trauma, which is, to be honest, the majority, deserve other people's sympathy. And the fact that people would even use that as an argument against empathizing with these situations, it's ridiculous in my opinion, because I mean, no one is out here debating if a new mom posts a picture of herself and her baby and, and talks about labor. No one is out here debating if that's worth sympathizing with. So why are we even mm-hmm. debating this? I mean, of course it is worth sympathizing with. People should not just sympathizing, but I mean, first of all, empathizing, that's the first step. So um, anyway, that was just just the thought. And again, the fact that when I read your post, I had to think every single black person I've spoken to that I'm close to has a story along the lines to share means that this is in a way a, a universal experience. And as you wrote in your post, it is a rite of passage and I was thinking about my brother for example he had that and I was there I was there when this happened I was six he was seven and we were in our primary school and we were outside and a kid did the same so essentially just called him out said oh you're a nigger and we, I think we didn't mm-hmm. even know what it meant that's the thing at six like, years old like what context do you have to, yeah. to even understand it's just the fact that Every single black person has that story to share. I'm thinking about my cousin as well. She recently shared a similar story about when she first realized that people perceived her as being other. So she was in international school at the time. 
And she said that one girl that she used to play with told her that if she wanted to be wise, she could just pour some milk on herself. <laughs> and oh, and she was very confused. And she went home and asked her mom if she had milk that she could give her. And her mom was like, what's up? What do you need all this milk for? And she was like, well, I'm just going to pour it on myself because my friend said that if I pour the milk on myself, I'll be white. And apparently that's a good thing. So, you know, it sounds, yeah, it's very that's sad. Definitely. And it sounds like such an innocent story in a way, like, oh, they're just kids playing, you know, but that's not it really. And I think for the people that insist on seeing it that way, clearly they've just made a choice not to open their eyes and dig a little bit deeper and do a bit of... I guess social analysis um, and and there is a whole other question around why some people are so reluctant to do that so I guess that would be a whole other episode but you did say that yeah. you were triggered to post this recently because of what's been going on and obviously you're from Minnesota and I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. how you've been feeling about seeing Minneapolis in the midst of riots being broadcast live actually on most news outlets and news channels and what was your first reaction how have you been reacting to that it was it was a lot it's one thing to see an uprising it's another thing to see a literally global uprising that was initiated and ignited in the place that you grew up So to this day, I have not watched uh, that whole video of George's death. I think that Black people in general have watched these types of videos enough, and we are not obligated to. But the the few seconds that I saw were enough for me, and it made me sick, physically sick. This video was different in that there was no question that this was wrong. I think when it comes to race relations, people always do want to find, especially people that don't understand, they want to find um, some reason as to how this happened. And there was no, there was no questioning that this just was completely wrong. The world watched this man lose his life in nine minutes. And it does feel like something is different because of the insidiousness, the, the terror that he went through the pain that he visibly was going through and the the callousness of the people watching. It deeply, deeply affected me. I was, you know, I was, I was really depressed for, for the week. And I had, I had to take time off for myself as a form of self-care just to honor that like this, this was deeply, deeply painful. And also to know that I have family and friends on the ground that are protesting that are trying to do the work to rebuild the community there and also seeing the dichotomy of what's happening and how the media is portraying it was also really, really troubling for me and painful to watch. What was the thing that Um, stood out to you in that respect? So the media coverage versus (laughs) you communicating with people on the ground, people that you know, your family, your close friends? The media was, was covering it to kind of say that people were wrong for writing and writing writing doesn't come out of nowhere you know we black people have been peacefully protesting for years for years and nothing has happened and 
George's death was kind of the straw that that broke the camel's back and stores can be rebuilt companies can be rebuilt his life is never going to come back that's that's gone forever so seeing people more concerned about property than the loss of life that was it was really troubling it was really troubling to me and also you know learning that a lot of the people that were instigating these riots were not even a part of the black lives matter movement they were outside actors from different states and from 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 fascist organizations seeing that man drive a semi into a a peaceful protest where my friends were and seeing them post from their point of view the semi coming at them and the confusion i'm i'm happy to see how how peaceful they have been and and continue to be but also to see the contrast of the violence inflicted on them and them still keeping them com- their composure and yeah it just it was it was a, it was a lot it just was a lot and it was really painful I can to imagine. watch and i think you definitely shine a light on another issue which is media coverage and what we perceive being on that receiving end and just getting snippets that have been deliberately chosen and edited by specific news outlet versus what's actually happening on the ground. And obviously you, in this instance, had people that could report back to you firsthand uh, what was happening. And what I find quite interesting is that social media plays a fairly big role in this, in this area, really, because although the importance of it has been downplayed, because obviously there is a lot of content that isn't necessarily relevant, there's also been a lot of very relevant content coming through over the last month since the riots Mm -hmm. happened since the social injustice have been broadcasted um, globally and so I that made me really rethink the role of social media in today's society and amongst us young people because I've been able to access some footage and see some things from a different point of view than what had been reported on, for example, BBC, which is where I get a lot of my news, uh, but even Al Jazeera or Sky News and CNN, to name a few. So I think it is really, really, really important to always question the source of your information, always question that, and always remember that there is a human behind every reportage. And you mm-hmm. can spin a story however you want. And sure, now we have more channels to be informed, but we also have more means to spin a story with technology and so on and it's it's difficult to navigate and it's quite stressful I personally found that to be sometimes overwhelming like trying to fact check everything but then I think it comes to a point where it comes quite natural you start realizing okay this is the direction Mm -hmm. and this news outlet is following and you know this is the way this person sees things but what I think it's super important right now is just to try and engage with different sources than you would normally rely on just try and be open if you see a piece of news that conflicts with what you what your understanding has been or what's been reported so far on your newspaper of choice or news outlet of choice maybe just spend some time digging a little bit deeper and trying to find a voice that might be different than yours just to understand a different point of view, at least to engage with a different point of view. And a lot of the conversations that I've been seeing, especially online, come down to that. They literally boil down to 
my point of view is the correct point of view versus your point of view isn't valid. And I find that it's good that we're having these conversations, but it's, it's challenging. And I think people just need to remember that exactly as you pointed out in your post, one person can go through one experience and one moment in a specific way and remember certain things and be affected by that moment in different ways than another person that was there and that was living that very same moment and Mm -hmm. living it in a very different way. So it's not about erasing one person's story. It's just about validating other people's points of view because that isn't the expression point of view itself it's a point of view there isn't one point of view there are many points of view if I take a picture of the same building from different angles it looks different so it's exactly the same with any moment in history so there are so many reflections and so many observations to be made and these are not new conversations but the fact that we're at a moment where black people specifically but I would say all non-white people have come to a tipping point really because that's what it is a a lot of people have been arguing well why now why are these riots happening now why are people so outraged right now this social injustice has been going on forever for decades for centuries actually but why are these people focusing so much of their energy on questioning when this is happening rather than just understanding that it was a combination of things, pandemic, we're all in lockdown, people are frustrated, mm-hmm. people tied with money, some people are stressed, some people are suffering from poor health. So you already have that stress. And then on top of this, there's been an escalation of episodes that have been brought to the attention of the global public. And I think George Floyd was just the tipping point. But there are so many incidents that happened over the last couple of months, even not just years, but months, that... Mm-hmm. It isn't just casual that people decided to stand up now. This is an explosion. It's an explosion because people have been faced with all of this in a time that's already very difficult. And all of a sudden, the whole world has seen it. And as you said, that that footage is undeniable. It's undeniable. And that's what's changed. What's changed is that now with technology, everyone has been able to see what truly happens on a daily basis. So to all the people that Mm -hmm. question, oh, why such an overreaction to one single event? Well, this is not one single event. So, yeah, I think there's been a lot of anger and frustration in seeing all these conversations being sidetracked by all of the silly, in my opinion, arguments. A hundred percent. And I think it's also really important to point out that this is just the one that was caught on tape. And that's the only reason why people are upset. This just happened to be caught on tape, but this happens continuously. And a lot of times to people that don't have even the the capacity to to pick up a phone in that moment, you know how trauma and and terror works. When When you're terrified, you forget what to do. So it just so happens that it was actually a 17-year-old girl who's dealing with her own trauma after having to, to record that situation. But yeah, this is just one instance where someone happened to record it. And I think that also gives rise to why did it take this much violence as well for people to finally get on board with Black Lives Matter? Matter, I think, is just the, the bare minimum. And the fact that this is still a topic of discussion is 
honestly really confusing to me. I don't think that the Black Lives Matter movement is radical at, at all. It was actually looked at for a while as a terrorist yeah. group, which is confusing in but and of itself. But it's also reminiscent of history because this isn't the first time that absolutely. a movement that promotes the implementation of human rights for Black people and essentially just the integration of Black people into mainstream society because that's what it is, just to ensure the same rights, has been absolutely. accused of such allegations. Yeah, I, yeah, you, you make an excellent point. I mean, the Black Panther movement as well that's been characterized as a as a terrorist group when in fact the right to bear arms is an American right that's a civil right and their only stance was that if you attack me I will defend myself and it's interesting that that stance is seen as a as a terrorist act when that's a yeah. human right I recently read the manifesto, the original manifesto of the Black Panthers, and I was so surprised because I had never read it before. And I thought it was just so mild in its requests. And the request <laughs> literally along the lines yeah. of, oh, we'd like to make sure that we're paid the same wages. So we'd like to make sure, not even that we have access to the same services. It was literally to the point that the requests included making sure that they had a neighborhood where they could live safely. Things like that where you think, wow, and this has been made into an extremist group. And sure, there's been some internal disputes, like every other party, especially at the time. But for the media to focus on that and for, um, you know, the CIA or whoever else was involved with tapping and... The assassinations, the assassinations of the the leaders. It's very questionable because I had to, again, I had to revisit history. And that's the thing that I'm hearing a lot of, people around me doing and I've been finding myself doing a lot over the last few years just revisiting narratives things that I've learned in school Mm -hmm. and digging myself and this goes back to the whole point I made before about getting at the bottom of things and trying to pick a source first at hand so just try and access information from the very source if you can and this is what I've been doing with a lot of movements I've just been going to you know, basically just stripping it down, starting from the beginning and accessing those documents that were edited by the people that actually belonged or founded those specific movements. So I did that with Black Panthers. I was very surprised because all of a sudden you, you're deconstructing all the narratives and the ideas that you've been brought up to believe as true. And it just opens your eyes to a different reality, but it also builds that empathy and understanding of, the human experience which very often is painted as universal but truthfully isn't unfortunately because we live in a world and in a system that's based on inequality and that's just a fact so we cannot just lump everyone and and assume that as I said before one point of view is the point of view so when it comes to history books again that's someone's point of view and that's what being approved for yeah. schools and curricula mm-hmm. by a certain group of people with their own biases like we all do have our biases and it now finally we have the means we have the internet we're connected more than ever to be able to have different conversations and groups which once were completely silenced I have now a voice and have now started talking and that's another thing 
that I think about a lot when people say, oh, why are you speaking up now? Why are these people speaking up now? Oh, that's convenient. You know, well, it's not about convenience. It's about being allowed to and having the means to. And now with the internet, which I, I constantly quote because I think it's one of the biggest forces for change, these people have been able to share their stories. Same way we're having this conversation and this is being shared. So a lot to think about there. Yeah, I think you made a, a another really good point that like history in general is is written from a point of view. And more often than not, it's written from the point of view of the winner or of the dominant uh, members of society. So I think that also kind of ties into the education system as well and how we teach children about information, about their history, about history in general, and how it's also structured into finding out what information is important to know and what information isn't, and also how we structure that information. I remember learning as a kid in history that the Black Panther Party was a terrorist group, that they were a group of people that hated white people and they went out and they killed them. And also that Malcolm X was a terrorist as well out to kill white people. And then it wasn't until I read his autobiography and I, I watched the movie and learned that it was, that I was basically taught complete bullshit. And that's a, that's a huge problem that I had to go out of my way to find that information. Cause I know that the reason why I did that is not the issue that the issue is that that should not be what all of us are doing we shouldn't have to fact check the information that's given to us in elementary school or in high school in general like i didn't even learn about black history until going to university until taking african-american studies classes and that i mean that was another thing that came out of this as well when i wrote my post actually on instagram my professor made a comment and he's, you know, he was saying how poignant it is that, you know, this is this is a rite of passage for all Black children. And I, I was so thankful to have the chance to be able to thank him for what he's done for me. Taking his class was the first time that I got an insight into Black history at all. That's where I learned about the Black Panther Party. That's where I learned about Juneteenth, oh, yeah. which, which we just talked about that. Um, yeah. a few days ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, going to college is a privilege. And that was my first introduction to the totality of American history. And, you know, I I worry about people that don't have the access to those types of environments, and the information that they're given, they're they're just stuck with that. And it's it's kind of up to them if they want to go out and find that information and do that digging. But it kind of gives way to a huge hole and a huge problem that we have in who has that information, how we get that information and who has access to it. Yeah. And I think complementing the history that you, you've been taught in school, that's something that we have the privilege to be able to do now because we are so connected mm-hmm. and we have access to so many resources. And that's also part of the reason why, this movement is thriving at the moment because I think the previous generations didn't have the means that we do. So it is so, so, so important to make use of those resources that we now have as a society for the first time in history. 
to be able to challenge those narratives. And the truth is, it's a challenging time for those historical institutions, which have always relied on that power of controlling information and deciding which information reaches people and how, and the fact that now these very institutions are being challenged because people are better educated. So obviously there is that to be taken into account. There's been more wealth, more people have degrees from different backgrounds, but also again, we have access to resources which we never had access to as ordinary citizens uh, prior in history. So I think it is, I think it is a unique moment. And sometimes it's difficult to see that when you're in it. And we are really in the midst mm-hmm. of this cultural revolution because of these dynamics, new dynamics that allow us and have put us in this position that we've never been in before and allows us to develop a more independent thought and opinion around facts and history and politics and so on. It, it is challenging, I think, on both ends. It's definitely challenging as an institution, just in terms of having people question the values that you perpetrate. And then there is that challenge as a person, as a, an ordinary citizen that has been at the receiving end and now has the means to question it and also to validate their own personal experience. Because all of a sudden, people have platforms to speak out but also a language that and a vocabulary to articulate those experiences and also that understanding for the first time that some of these experiences such as yours are universal and Mm -hmm. other people have been so many other people have been in the same situation so really truly when a lot of people are in the same situation that's a societal problem so when people say oh in this case racism is just a problem of the u.s that's just denial really and that's just minimizing a global experience really for a whole group of millions of people and especially in the UK I see this argument so much people just saying well but here is different you know the US I mean they've had institutional racism and slavery I was like well you've had the same and I (laughs) it started started here here. but not only that like one thing that I had never heard before until recently is that it wasn't until the 60s that parliament in the UK passed an anti-racism bill that officially stated that you'd be prosecuted if you were to be discriminated based on race, gender, age. And I was thinking this was the 60s. So truly the history is not that different. It just comes in a different, in a different form it manifests itself yeah, really differently. differently. But racism is deeply entrenched deeply, in, in the UK. Deeply Very entrenched. Deep. I don't know if you follow Afua Hirsch. She's yeah. a British journalist and a published author. And she recently shared on her Twitter a post about an interview that she had a couple of years ago with a British broadcaster, which luckily for myself, I didn't know, but I didn't grow up in the UK, but I think he's quite popular. And his name is Nick Ferrari. And he, sorry, I'm laughing because it's just so bad. I mean, it's not funny at all. It's more of a coping mechanism. I, <laughs> but, yeah. I do the same thing. So they were having a conversation a couple of years ago about statues, which now is so relevant. So I think that's the reason why she brought this post up. And she was just questioning 
the legacy of some of these figures that are celebrated with statues throughout London. And one of the statues I should mention was Winston Churchill. And he replied saying something along the lines of, I really like you, which I found extremely patronizing. He said, I really like you, but if you don't like it here, just leave. And I was just thinking, not only is very dismissive and you're telling a British person to leave Britain, well, I mean, it's her home, she's British, but also, and this is just something that caught my attention. I thought, okay, Nick Ferrari. Ferrari sounds like an Italian surname, quite obviously. So I looked him up and he's a son of immigrants. Like his dad is Italian. And interestingly, on his Wikipedia page, I couldn't find anything about his dad other than the fact that he owned a media company. Usually on the Wikipedia page, you would have some sort of nod to the parents' history. You know, they'll be like, oh, of this heritage, of moved to the UK in this year from this country. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I did a, a research in Google, couldn't find much in the first couple of pages, then I left it because I didn't want to spend too much of my time on that. But I found that super interesting. But what I found even more interesting is that his name isn't even Nick Ferrari. His name is Niccolo Ferrari, which is like the most Italian name. And my mind was blown. <laughs> my mind was blown I mean I don't know if anyone else has commented on this and I'll probably have to look it up but I thought wow first of all the fact that he's made his he's made his nickname which sounds more English which is Nick into his main name because that's how people address him but truly that isn't there are so many layers that just erasing your own history as a first or second generation I'm not sure because I couldn't find that information immigrant so coming from someone that has that background that is the (laughs) again (laughs) here we go (laughs) but um yeah coming from someone that has that sort of background and parents who migrated in the first place I just found it shocking that also is the lack of self-awareness but also that deliberate will of wanting to erase that and in my opinion those are the worst like people that resent their own history and their own heritage and so they really try hard to fight that and prove themselves to be other and to fit within sort of more conservative establishment political establishment but anyway so that that was one thing which made me think well if people think that racism isn't a thing this was live on air a broadcaster Mm -hmm. telling another broadcaster essentially to leave and then the second fact and this I saw this morning on Instagram was this singer who won X Factor back in the days um Lady Bird, yes I, I saw that yeah mm-hmm. and she oh did you see that so she posted this video about yep. her experience so she won X Factor in 2008 I think and ever since she's rose to stardom and she's been on several shows and she spoke out about her experience being a black woman winning X Factor and finding herself being part of this music industry, which was very hostile to Black women and still is. And I was just shocked. And I was thinking this again, I think she's a couple of years younger than me. And she was saying how when she was 16, she got promised a record uh, label contract. And then later on, when she got in touch with the management, she got told, sorry, we've already filled it. We already have a Black female singer now. So we basically don't need you anymore. So we filled our quote of, one black singer and and again this is an extremely talented woman and also she got told that her hairstyle wasn't okay 
that her baby has had to be covered, that her hairstyle had to look more Western, that she got asked to bleach her skin, which apparently she refused to do. And even if she had done it, to be honest, I wouldn't condemn her anyway, because at that age, if you know, you're presented with all of these conditions, this is your work, this is your job, and this is the industry, you're probably going to go with it. So I mean, kudos to her for having even the strength to stand against that. But it's just hearing all of these stories. And these are British people, English people sharing their stories. And I really, really, really hope all Brits and all people in the UK can open their eyes and their minds and their ears and pay attention to these stories because this is happening every day and these are two very successful women I think that's why I bring it up these are two very successful women so imagine just ordinary people and what they have to endure and they don't necessarily have the credibility and the platforms and the coverage that these women have to speak their truth so I just urge people to imagine that as being almost every person of colour's experience in the UK and rethink that fact that here we have a post-racial society that we've overcome all of that because it's just being swept under the rug, really. And now, finally, people are speaking up. The UK is not no. innocent. So, wow. Okay, that was, <laughs> that was a deep dive. We went deep. <laughs> It was good though. I re- I really enjoyed the conversation. It really helped actually to to see you face to face. I think it wouldn't have worked as well. Simple so I'm going to ask you one last thing, actually. Go for it. Because I feel like we've obviously dived into so many real life issues, but they're also quite heavy and problems that unfortunately people like yourself and many other people have to endure. So have you had any coping mechanism throughout? your life that has helped you get through these moments or have you just simply decided to um, toss them aside and move on no I think as I mentioned before that as as a black woman and as a visibly very dark-skinned black woman I feel like a lot of times my experience is invalidated and when I speak about these things it's always like, did that really happen? Or are you sure? Or, you know, trying to kind of also kind of nitpick these these different parts of, of my story when that's not that's not the point. The point is, as you said, that's my truth. That is my experience. So I found that the way to validate my experience and to honor myself and my feelings was to write. That was my therapy. That's always been my therapy. That was the only way that I was able to fully express myself without question and without worrying about how other people are going to interpret my feelings. So that was my that was my number one outlet. Like I said, I've been doing that since I was around yeah eight seven, and I know that it that it is a cause of having been through a lot of trauma. And not knowing who to talk to or how to talk to anyone about it. So that was my escape. And that was my therapy. Also, art was my therapy. It was the only time where I could I could express myself fully, but also completely shut my brain off. 
Whereas like in, in writing, you know, it's a little bit more introspective and dedicated. I do, I, I do practice free writing where I just, I write and I don't care about syntax or grammatical errors. I just oh, okay. write whatever's in my head, but art, it's almost like a trance for me. I completely shut down and I shut off and literally it's like mind in hand and that's it. And I do that for, it, it can be for hours without me Are those really the things realizing. you've been doing during lockdown to get through this sort of difficult, stressful period? Yes, absolutely. I'm really sad that I'm not able to do pottery oh, yeah. right now. I'm, but, I'm um, waiting for your pottery yeah, but that has, by the way. <laughs> I'm I'm waiting for it too. I'm I'm trying to get on it. But that's been really therapeutic for me too, just being in the studio and like working with, you know, such a it is very much almost like a primordial practice, just making things from scratch. So yeah, that that has been definitely my therapy and um and also seeking therapy too. I I did that recently in the past few mm-hmm. years. Um I definitely suffered from thinking that even though I wrote about a lot of the trauma that I've been through I think I still thought that I didn't deserve to feel the pain that I felt and it wasn't until going to therapy and I sought specifically a a black woman therapist because race is definitely deeply entrenched in a lot of my issues and speaking to someone who I didn't have to explain why some of these things were important or devastating was really important to me. But I think for all people in general, I think it's really important to go to therapy. But Black people, like the intergenerational trauma that we've all experienced, you know, whether you've experienced it or not, that's like in our DNA. Trauma is in our DNA. And yeah, just having a third party unbiased person to express yourself to was really 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 it was it was really important for my progression and for my um my health in general I think in general too black people are not allowed to feel angry and I feel and I I realized that for the majority of my life I had never really expressed anger so that I've, I've never really yelled at anyone before I've never screamed when I'm upset I can count on one hand the amount of times that I've done it and anger is a part of the human experience and I've personally have denied myself the right to feel angry and going to therapy was instrumental in me grasping and coming to terms with my shadow self like the the part of myself that's not quite put together the the part of myself that's that's very dark that's angry that's frustrated that's depressed when you mentioned mm-hmm. um that sort of passing on of the baton between generations i think that's so meaningful in relation to expressing anger because our parents generation especially who like ourselves who have african parents that migrated there was this narrative of being a good migrant a good black migrant and that's so like deeply and mm-hmm. i mean i smile because i know that you know what i mean but it's just so deeply ingrained mm-hmm. and it was a coping mechanism but also a way of facilitating their experiences migrants in western countries where they made a really big effort to make sure they came across as being good citizens let's say good in quotation marks so you know mm-hmm. calm just mm-hmm. never overreacting just making sure they stayed out of trouble just always 
been quite a condescending as well, which is one thing I remember thinking of mm -hmm. my childhood. And thinking back, that is a form of repression and suppression as well, that people had to put themselves through deliberately to a certain extent, to the point that they even convinced themselves that that's the correct way of being and that's the best way of being a good citizen because it's overall beneficial. As you say, there's, there's so many aspects that need to be deconstructed and revisited and there's so much that we just absorb and that we've just inherited in terms of behaviors that we need to change and that luckily we're able to address and discuss and overcome yeah as scary as this whole quarantine situation has been it's given us an opportunity for introspection that we've never had before for global introspection not just on race but also intrinsically on who we are and why we are. So if it were not for this quarantine, I don't think that I would have came to the realization that I, I, I did in that post. It was mainly because I had the time. It, it's, great. it's great to see people using that time for good and using that time to do the work to be a better you know, citizen, to learn about these issues that they didn't know about, but also like to learn about themselves more importantly about how they can be better and also the things that they've been doing wrong. I completely agree and I think I'm gonna end on that note. So thank you so much for taking your time to share your story and to share your thoughts and have a conversation with myself. So hopefully I'll be able to host you on the podcast again. Thanks again for your time. Take care of yourself. And for any of the listeners that want to follow Marie on social media, I'll just pass it on to you if there's any account that you'd like to share. Sure. My Instagram account is verbs the word. So that's V-E-R-B-S underscore the underscore. Such a good name. Word. <laughs> um. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Wish Thank I had you. come out with that. <laughs> um, so yeah so if you're interested obviously in following her you can just do that once again thanks a lot for your time and hopefully i'll see you again soon in the park <laughs> social distancing i know <laughs> yeah. make that clear but yeah thank you so so much for having me sarah it was so great speaking to you as always and um also congratulations on starting this podcast like what what i'm just i'm so proud of you and so excited to see where this takes you i'm unbelievably impressed with the content that you've been able to create in such a short time i am rooting for you and um we'll talk soon bye